Good for Patients but Not Learners, Exploring Faculty and Learner Virtual Care Integration. Authors, Lisa Shepard, Allison McConnell, and Christopher Watling. Abstract, background. The pandemic catapulted the adoption of virtual care far ahead of its anticipated maturation date, forcing faculty to role model and teach learners with barely enough time to master it themselves. With a scant body of pre-pandemic literature now accompanied by experience gained under extraordinary circumstances, we can benefit from understanding ad hoc strategies implemented by those on the front lines and from listening to learners about what is working and what is not. The purpose of this study was to explore the experience of learner integration into virtual care from both the faculty and learner perspectives. Methods. Using a constructivist grounded theory methodology and social materiality as a sensitizing concept, we recruited participants using purposeful and theoretical sampling from a Canadian university with limited pre-pandemic virtual care provision. We interviewed 16 faculty and five learners spanning a breadth of specialties and years of practice and education to probe their experience of teaching and learning virtual care. Data collection and analysis were conducted iteratively with themes identified through constant comparative analysis. Results? Integrating learners into virtual care proved challenging initially because of lack of familiarity with the process and later because of disrupted workflow triggered by the structure and logistics of the virtual care clinic. Both faculty and learners identified learning deficiencies in the virtual care experience when compared with in-person clinics, but several unique and valuable learning affordances were noted. All faculty expressed a desire to keep virtual care as part of their future clinic practice, but paradoxically, most felt that they were unlikely to include learners. Conclusions? Training learners in virtual care is an educational challenge that will not disappear with COVID-19, even if our participants wished it could. The perceived value for patients, but not learners, begs a reconsideration of the socio-material contribution to this pandemic paradox. Introduction. The pandemic catapulted the adoption of virtual care far ahead of its anticipated maturation date, forcing physicians, most with little previous experience or training, to adopt virtual care very quickly. By necessity, it was implemented with minimal instruction to a population quite different from the rural and remote patients who were the original targets of virtual care during a time of significant personal and professional uncertainty. Furthermore, faculty and teaching institutions were expected to role model, teach and assess learner performance in a virtual care environment with barely enough time to master this themselves. Learners, too, were uprooted by the pandemic, their learning disrupted by restrictions and, in some instances, displaced by patient care. Virtual care was defined in 2018 as, quote, any interaction between patients and or members of their circle of care occurring remotely using any forms of communication or information technologies with the aim of facilitating or maximizing the quality and effectiveness of patient care, end quote. The nomenclature surrounding virtual care can be confusing. The term telemedicine, the use of electronic communication by clinicians and patients to exchange health information, is synonymous with virtual care. 
Telehealth is a more comprehensive term encompassing telemedicine and medical education. For reader clarity, the term virtual care will be used whenever possible throughout this paper. For over 30 years, virtual care has been delivered primarily with a focus to increase access to primary and specialist care in rural and remote sites. In high-income countries with widely available technologic resources and a regulatory health care framework, it was entering the mainstream following the slow diffusion process that accompanies most innovations in medical practice, influenced by economic, societal, institutional, and individual factors. Pre-pandemic, educators had begun to address the issue of how learners should be integrated into virtual care. In a 2015 study, supervised residents managed dermatology consultations sent from another site with medical students acting as observers. Although they had no direct patient interaction, both residents, 79%, and medical students, 88%, agreed or strongly agreed that teledermatology was an important educational tool. Knight examined virtual consultations on remote patients in Australia and found educational value in involving learners as observers. Both of these early efforts at integrating learners into virtual care described educational value in observation and listening in, which has been shown to be effective for early learners. However, these studies barely scratched the surface of what virtual care has to offer educationally for more senior learners who need to engage in authentic clinical work. In 2016, the vast majority of American medical students and residents were not being taught how to use virtual care. In response to this deficiency, curriculum development began to progress. A scoping review identified curricular needs for physicians and physicians in training. Governing bodies and educational leaders were urging development of competencies for both undergraduate and postgraduate trainees. However, it was not until March 2021 that the Association of American Medical Colleges, the AAMC, published their first telehealth competencies. The leisurely pace of curriculum development was disrupted by the pandemic. Guidelines about integrating learners into virtual care delivery were quickly published very early in the pandemic. Largely practical and just in time, these guidelines were written for faculty by university faculty development offices and specialty governing bodies. As the pandemic persisted, Virtual care innovations involving learners began to appear in medical education journals. Reports on undergraduate virtual care curriculum development were published. Novel ways of involving displaced medical students in virtual patient care were also described. Fewer publications involving postgraduate virtual care integration were found, likely because residents and fellows continued working through the pandemic rather than being removed from care, as was the case for medical students in some countries. Nonetheless, innovations in both virtual care teaching and assessment have been described at the residency level in recent work. This pandemic proliferation of just-in-time reporting of virtual care teaching innovations showed what was possible. But to date, there have been little research published exploring the quality of the experience and the impact of the virtual setting on learners and teachers. Underdeveloped research leaves room to question the ultimate educational value of this technology. 
Having lost the luxury of time to allow theory and form practice change, we can now benefit from understanding the strategies that are being implemented ad hoc by those on the front lines and from listening to learners about what is working and what is not. Exploratory research is a useful way of grounding future virtual care curricular development and backfilling some of the theory that was impossible to address under pandemic conditions, where teachers were understandably required to innovate first and reflect later. The purpose of this study is to explore how faculty and learners experience the integration of learners into virtual care. Methods. Study design. We conducted a constructivist grounded theory study to address our research question. Constructivist grounded theory enables a useful conceptualization of social processes. The provision of care virtually and the integration of learners into that social process are thus well suited to exploration by constructivist grounded theory. Inherent in constructivist grounded theory methodology is a concept that participant and researcher construct the experience and meaning together to support theoretical interpretation. This requires researchers to remain reflexive and to consider how their backgrounds and experience may shape their perspectives. We therefore provide the following contextual information. All authors are physicians. LS and AM are emergency physician educators who do not participate in virtual care clinics. CW is a neurologist who has provided virtual patient care and a PhD scientist with expertise in medical education research. Throughout this study, we were repeatedly reflected on our individual perspectives on virtual care as both patients and physicians and considered how this might affect our data collection and analysis. Participant recruitment and sampling. All physician, faculty, residents, and medical students at Western University in London, Ontario, Canada, were emailed an invitation to participate in individual interviews. We intended and succeeded in recruiting early participants from a wide variety of specialties and career stages, anticipating insights into a wide range of virtual clinic experiences. For the latter study participants, we progressed to theoretical sampling, where we purposefully selected patients for their ability to provide data that could confirm, challenge, or expand our developing understanding. For example, we sought out physicians with high-volume clinics to compare their experiences of learner preparation with that of earlier participants with low-volume clinics. As themes emerge relating to virtual clinic workflow and faculty attitudes, we sampled a much larger number of faculty compared with learners. Our sampling was done with the aim to enrich our exploration of the topic, not to balance the number of faculty, learner, participants, nor compare and contrast their perspectives. Context. Prior to the pandemic, virtual care at our center was delivered by a small number of faculty using the hospital-approved video conference platform. The number of dedicated computers and rooms available for this purpose were limited. Learners were rarely involved and then typically in an observer capacity. With the arrival of the pandemic, most virtual care was delivered by telephone. However, faculty had the option to use video conferencing. Although the hospital provided guidelines for video conferencing practice, there was nothing that specifically addressed the integration of learners. As a pandemic response expanded, 
remuneration for virtual care was provided by our publicly funded healthcare system. Data collection, sensitizing concept, and analysis. The principal investigator conducted individual semi-structured interviews from March until June of 2021, exploring the experiences of learner integration into the provision of virtual care. During this period of time, there was a surge of COVID cases in our community. Lasting between 25 and 50 minutes, the interviews were conducted remotely using video conferencing software. They were recorded and transcribed verbatim with identifying data removed. In devising the questions, the authors drew on their experience of conversations with colleagues and learners over the duration of the pandemic. All faculty were asked to describe their virtual care experience, both current and pre-pandemic, to explain the structure of their virtual care clinic and to reflect on how they integrated learners into these clinics. Learners were asked to describe their experience in virtual care clinics and to reflect on which aspects enhance or detracted from their learning experiences. Consistent with our methodology, data collection and data analysis were concurrent and iterative. Interviews with learners and faculty were interspersed to enhance our understanding. Probes and questions were added to later interviews that enabled a deeper exploration of ideas that we identified in early faculty and learner transcript analysis. Very early in our analysis, we recognized that there were influences beyond our human participants that affected their experience with learner integration into virtual care. Consequently, social materiality became a sensitizing concept or a helpful lens through which to view our data. Sensitizing concepts draw attention to important features of social interaction and provide a place to start inquiry in a constructivist grounded theory study. Sociomateriality is a broad term that encompasses a number of research approaches sharing the central tenet of decentering the human as the focus of the study to allow for a deeper exploration of the complex, messy, and nonlinear relationships between materials and social practices. Although our constructivist grounded theory methodology utilized human-centric interviews to collect our data, We intentionally noted the impact of materials, such as technology, web platforms, clinic schedule, telephones and prescriptions, and the relationship to learners and teachers, as well as social factors, such as clinic organization, educational responsibility, and government remuneration decisions, and how they influence the educational experience. This socio-material lens became part of all of our analytic conversations as a team, We deliberately and repeatedly attended to how the participants interacted with the social and material concerns as we derived and named themes. Through this sensitizing concept, we were better able to explore what actually happened in the integration of learners into virtual care clinics, rather than what was intended to happen, a focus of socio-material research. The research team used a constant comparative approach to interpret the various ways in which participants described their experiences. First, LS and AM independently read the first two transcripts to identify initial codes. Next, LS and AM consolidated the initial codes into preliminary themes that were applied to the next five transcripts. Frequent team meetings were held to review the analysis and to develop a set of themes used to recode the entire data set. 
All codes, themes, and definitions were stored in a code book, and coding discrepancies were resolved before the data set was recoded. Relationships among the themes were explored to develop a coherent, conceptual understanding of our research question. At each stage of the analysis, we consulted with CW to discuss the evolving analysis and to probe analytical insights, which were tracked using reflective memos. Data collection and analysis continued until we reached theoretical sufficiency when we believed that we had sufficient data from each group to satisfy our exploratory research questions. Inter interviews were coded and managed using in vivo software, and an audit trail documented all steps and decisions. The Western University Health Sciences Research Ethics Board approved all research procedure, ID number 117988. Results. In the process of virtual care integration, both learners and faculty were challenged. Given that most participants utilized the telephone rather than video conference platforms, technology alone was not a major contributor to the struggle. However, when the interconnected social influences surrounding this technology, such as clinic organization, time management, educational responsibility, and physician remuneration were considered together with the technology, some of the unintended consequences were revealed. The comfortable routines of the pre-pandemic outpatient clinics were disrupted, initially because of lack of familiarity with the process and later because of disrupted workflow triggered by the structure and logistics of the virtual care clinic. Both faculty and learners identified learning deficiencies in the virtual care experiences when compared with in-person clinics, but several unique and valuable learning affordances were noted. All participants expressed a desire to keep virtual care as part of their future clinic practice, but paradoxically, most faculty felt that they were unlikely to include learners. Each of these concepts will be expanded below and illustrated through quotes from participants. Routines disrupted. As virtual care clinics were being launched, faculty expressed reluctance to introduce learners before they were comfortable themselves, as described by this faculty member. I had a lot of hesitancy at first because I was like, how do I even do this? It's going to be a headache. Learners were introduced as faculty gained proficiency with their virtual care clinic. Participants described constantly changing logistics and technology in response to pandemic conditions, institutional policy, specialty specifics, and individual faculty preferences. Educational mandate was not cited by any of our participants as a reason for workflow change. The shift to virtual clinics disrupted the long-established traditional clinic routines, making visible the value of preparation for both the clinic and the learner. When this preparation was lacking, the results were noticed, as exemplified by this learner's comment. I think these virtual clinics that just happened, they were makeshift. How can the preceptor optimize more the on-service residents and the off-service residents? It just takes someone to put thought into it. Clinic workflow preparation. Participants recognized how the operational aspects of their in-person clinics were so well established that they'd become almost invisible. Conversely, virtual clinics demanded considerable thought and preparation, both before and after learners were added, 
Workflow adaptations in virtual care varied among faculty, but the idea that reworking was required for what used to happen unconsciously was prevalent among participants, as this faculty member noted. All of the things that would have happened in the clinic normally, like rescheduling lab recs and prescriptions, all of those things that we would have been given to the patient at the time fell to our secretaries to do. One faculty member outlined the adjustment and consequent financial implications required to bring learners into their virtual clinic. I had to just add more time, which unfortunately from a clinic revenue perspective makes it more inefficient. In-person clinics that were run in parallel with overlapping patients being seen by multiple learners did not translate easily into virtual clinics, which required patients to be scheduled more in series than in parallel. One of the participants who tried and abandoned video conferencing in favor of telephone visits described the time management challenge created when introducing learners into the virtual encounter. I find that the hospital approved video conference platform is not useful for learners at all. And the reason for that is that it is very particular in allocating exactly a certain time slot to a patient as well. And so you cannot start early, you cannot start later. And in a clinic with learners, you have to have flexibility of when to start, how long to a visit takes, et cetera. And the hospital approved platform does not allow that. Many faculty participants found it difficult to replicate the sidebar discussions that they had with learners outside the patient room in their traditional clinics. Some worked around this by telling the patient that they would hang up and call back, but others continued to struggle with this as described by this faculty. I just have not figured out how to get the student to do that without just putting them on the spot in front of the family. And then if they do not get it right, they do not feel good about that. Typically in the past, you step out into the hall, you tell the family to wait a little minute and you just have a chat and then go in. When adaptations for virtual clinic logistics were not made, time was wasted as noted by this learner. That task of checking people into a virtual waiting room or calling and making sure the patient was by the phone, no administrator took over that task. The nurse practitioners and the residents and even the staff took over the part. And given the fact that the schedules were not on time, there were was a big part of your time just calling people and getting alternate phone numbers calling alternate contacts to be able to get ways to reach them. Booking follow-up appointments, arranging prescriptions, and organizing outpatient investigations, all tasks easily accomplished in traditional clinics, proved a much greater challenge virtually. Although faculty participants described developing effective personal approaches to these workflow challenges, they expressed reservations about including learners, as explained here. I asked them, the residents, to stop faxing prescriptions because then you never know if it got done right. Learner preparation. In virtual clinics, where time was taken to prepare for learners, dividends were realized by both participant learners and faculty. Triaging and assigning patients to learners, informing them of clinic logistics, and emailing templates of patient assessment expectations were all example of pre-clinic preparations that were valued. One resident described it this way. 
I would say that with some of the not so good experiences I've had mostly, I guess the common theme of them, for me at least, is there's not too much pre-planning or thought that goes into the learner itself. Faculty also experienced a benefit, as noted by this preceptor, who provided written material to medical students at the start of their rotation. I've often found that the medical student has actually done a better job on the virtual visit than the first year resident, maybe partly because they prepared better ahead of time. Affordances and challenges. Affordances, skills for learners. Participants identified advantages of virtual care that were not experienced in the in-person clinics. In some specialties, for example, geriatrics and developmental pediatrics, specific remote patient examination skills were being adapted and standardized internationally. These were subsequently taught to residents. Learners gained familiarity with the different video platforms as well as telephone use and remote patient care. They learned about informed consent, privacy issues, and virtual care etiquette, as described by this resident. Learning how to use the different modalities like the local video concert, video conferencing platform and other virtual platforms and privacy things like learning how to block my phone number when I'm calling patients, different sorts of skills of virtual care like looking at the camera instead of at the screen and closing all notifications, that type of thing. These are all skills that I did not have before. Participants recognize pivoting, moving a virtual care clinic to an in-person visit because of an unexpected finding on assessment as a skill that was unique to the virtual environment and sometimes made use of opportunities to discuss how and under what circumstances decisions to pivot should be made as explained by this faculty. The virtual visit is not adequate, and so we have had to say, I need to see you. I need to do a physical exam. I need to know what is going on. Here is how you can be safe until we can see you. We anticipated that the process of triage applied to determine the suitability of patients for participation in virtual rather than inpatient care might be a key piece of the virtual care process. Consistently, faculty participants recognized the need for triage, but either delegated it to others or did it themselves. However, the common thread was the fact that they did not include learners. It would be hard. You would have to say, why do not you come by for 20 minutes and I'll take you through three or four of these. But after that, I'm going to zoom through them because I have to get home tonight. And that would be helpful from a learning experience. I just do not know how practical it would be in our clinic. Affordances, observation and assessment opportunity for faculty. Some faculty found virtual care better for observing learners non-intrusively, as explained by this participant. It's a better setup for direct observation because the observer can be completely absent in terms of phone mute and video off. By exploiting this ability to absent themselves from direct interaction, faculty were also able to optimize their assessment. I have time while, say, the resident's interviewing the patient, I can start clicking an entrustable professional activity in real time. I can capture it probably better than I could by meeting after clinic and trying to recollect what they say and did not do or and did do. So there's a strength there in the virtual clinic setting for these types of, of assessments. Challenges. 
Despite the identified affordances, both faculty and learners felt that virtual care provided an inferior learning experience. One learner described how faculty set up the encounters in this way. They always had the running theme of, yeah, we're really sorry that you could not see these patients in person. There was always an apology. And faculty noted reluctance when inviting learners. I'm doing virtual. Do you guys want to come and join me? But there's always an in-person thing going on that always takes priority. All participants agreed that the restricted physical exam and opportunity to demonstrate clinical findings contributed to this perception of virtual care inferiority. They described the reduced observation of nonverbal cues in virtual care, which limited rapport building and added to the overall challenge of the encounter. Learners also missed the collaborative aspect of in-person clinics, noting the absence of opportunities to teach and learn from each other. The challenges for faculty of time and the concomitant financial implications have been previously noted. Not ever. All participants expected that virtual care would be a part of their future practice as long as it remained funded. For selected patients, especially those seen for follow-up visits, they felt that virtual care would be more patient-centered, cost-effective, and efficient. One faculty expressed regret at not being an early adopter. I'm just totally embarrassed how now about all these people over the years that I've made travel from so far away when it wasn't necessary. However, most faculty participants had no plan to include learners in their post-pandemic virtual care, explaining that I just don't think it's meaningful for them and questioning the return on investment for the learner for the most responsible physician for the patients. Our participants were thus conflicted. They embraced the value of virtual care for patients, but dismissed its value for learners. Although all plan to continue with the virtual care post-pandemic, most faculty wish to leave learners out of the equation as soon as possible. Discussion. This study explored the integration of medical students and residents into the provision of virtual care at one institution, offering insight into the opportunities and challenges perceived by both faculty and learners. Our results identified both a paradox and a contradiction that invite deeper discussion. The paradox is that all of our participants plan to continue virtual care for selected patients, but most faculty did not want to include learners. How can physician teachers see such benefit in this for their patients, but opt out of training the next generation to provide this care? Their answer to this question provides the contradiction. Participants found little value for learners in virtual care, despite being able to describe its multiple unique affordances. This contradiction highlights the novel contribution of this paper to the growing literature on virtual care learning and its place in post-pandemic practice. We suggest three concepts that act in synergy to create the perception of virtual care as an inferior learning experience. One, the extent to which workflow changes were disregarded. Two, the problematic framing of virtual care as a substitute rather than a complement. And three, the background positioning of the educational mandate. These concepts will be described in more detail below, accompanied by some practical suggestions that may encourage a reconsideration. Workflow changes disregarded. 
Prior to the pandemic, almost all of the outpatient care at our facility was delivered in person through traditional outpatient clinics. These clinics had established workflow routines that managed scheduling, the actual appointment process, future investigations, prescription, and follow-up appointments. Learners were integrated into these clinics that had been fine-tuned over time and required little in the way of ongoing attention. The pandemic disrupted these well-established, smoothly operating clinics and forced a very quick transformation into virtual clinics. Faculty adapted their workflow processes to accommodate patient needs, making frequent adjustments as conditions dictated. Our participants noted that they needed time to figure out these changes themselves before incorporating learners into the clinic. When learners arrived, faculty became acutely aware of the accompanying challenges and inefficiency. Financial disincentives and workflow obstructions were also challenges. We would suggest that most of these problems were present to some degree for in-person clinics, but they'd been buffered by structure and routine to minimize the negative effects. Teachers and learners have come to rely on certain educational routines and may have felt untethered when these were no longer available. One participant questioned the return on investment required to integrate learners into future virtual care. A not unreasonable thought given the time and energy already expended to maintain ever-changing patient-centered virtual care clinics. However, our learner participants found that minor, intentional changes to some of the social and material aspects of the virtual clinic workflow offered major rewards. Fenwick describes the process of tinkering with socio-material components in times of uncertainty to enhance the learning experience. This correlates well with workflow adjustments made by some faculty as pandemic conditions shifted. The tasks themselves, for example, scheduling appointments and managing prescriptions, were not especially difficult, but the modifications required thoughtful, explicit changes in routine. This more explicit approach seems to be a prerequisite for constructive virtual care learning experience. Attending systematically to the before, during, and after phases of a virtual care visit and the creation of an explicit functional workflow are two critical elements that have been suggested. The importance of a virtual clinic pre-clinic huddle to select appropriate patients and outline expectations has also been described in the literature. Learners in our study confirmed clarity and comfort of attending a virtual care clinic where the expectations were clearly communicated beforehand. The time investment may be small, but the thoughtful attention to make the process explicit may require a considerable stretch in mindset. Complement, not substitute. At the start of the pandemic, governing bodies and institutions strongly encouraged virtual care visits as a substitute for in-person clinics, or at least as an initial assessment step to reduce the risk of exposure for both patients and staff and to preserve personal protective equipment supplies. Framing something as a substitute invites direct comparisons, which seem to resonate with our participants, with the apologies by faculty for not providing an in-person experience, and the eagerness of learners to escape virtual care clinics for in-person clinics. When directly compared as a substitute for traditional clinics, it's perhaps not surprising that our participants found virtual care to be an inferior learning experience. In a recent study, 24% of surgical residents disagreed that residents should be involved in video visits. 
The authors posited that this may have been due to the residents' difficulty overcoming their initial experience with virtual care as an emergency measure, which resonates with this idea of initial experience as a poor substitute. The well-worn idea that the medical expert role is privileged over all others is likely also a contributing factor. For some participants, the limited virtual care physical examination was an almost insurmountable disadvantage. Although skills of triaging patients for virtual care suitability and pivoting back to inpatient care when indicated require medical expert knowledge, many of the other identified virtual care affordances involved historically less valued proficiencies, such as communication, practicing with technology, and health advocacy. As we've moved deeper into the pandemic, we've recognized a shift in virtual care messaging. For example, some Canadian regulators have begun to message that virtual care is not a substitute for in-person care, but rather a complement. Our results suggest that a similar shift in messaging may be required to successfully incorporate learners into virtual clinics. When viewed as a valuable adjunct, the virtual care possibilities expand for both learners and teachers. Educational mandate backgrounded. Our exploration here involved individuals and their education experiences, but our socio-material sensitizing concept drew our attention to the idea that individuals can only work within their existing system. Things like policy structure, institutional organization, and the place of learners in a crisis were outside the control of our participants, but had an influence nonetheless. Historically, it seems that learners are not considered when the profession responds to disruptions in medical practice. During these significant changes, policy and education are directed solely at the practitioners, with learners often relegated to consideration well after changes have been made. Educators are then left to react rather than participate proactively or even concurrently in shaping the response. Our results support this idea that pandemic virtual care delivery with learners is following a pattern at the individual, institutional, and systemic levels. At the individual levels, our faculty participants, who are otherwise enthusiastic teachers committed to educating learners in all other areas, would prefer to sit this one out. At the institutional level, our faculty receive neither guidance nor support to bring learners into their virtual practice. Institutional video platforms were not user friendly. Undergraduate and postgraduate programs offered little in the way of formal training in virtual care. At the systemic level, educational competencies, guidelines, faculty development and remuneration policies are evolving, but this process lags well behind current needs. This diminution of the educational mandate is not new. We do not have to search far into the past for examples. The introduction of the electronic medical record may serve as a cautionary tale of learner neglect early in the technological implementation process. The electronic medical record was introduced to reduce medical error, increase continuity of care, and facilitate big data research. Despite these operational benefits, the electronic medical record introduced many educational problems that were not appreciated until the system had been fully implemented. Teachers and learners found themselves struggling with challenges posed by the interface of the computer among teacher, learner, and patient, a potential reduction in clinical thinking, and an overload of excessive data. 
Eloy et al. stressed that ambient exposure to new technology was insufficient and offered recommendations for mitigating electronic medical record hurdles that could well be applied to some of the virtual care challenges identified by our participants. These included deliberate instruction on technology with guidance and modeling and the need for electronic medical record workflows, competency frameworks, and accreditation standards. As in virtual care, socio-material concerns figured prominently in electronic medical record introduction, forcing new routines of working that then required adaptation by educators. Other examples of a socio-material view of workflow compensation as a direct result of technology introduction have been described in distributed medical education and in the digital workplace. Limitations. We recognize that the context of our study is not globally shared. Our results were situated in a single institution with a low pre-pandemic virtual care update, uptake, which may limit transferability to centers with a more robust technologic infrastructure and more advanced virtual care users. Telephone was a prime method of virtual care delivery for our participants, which presented challenges that may differ from video conferencing. Some of our methodologic choices may also have introduced some limitations. Our decision to conduct the study after more than a year of pandemic-influenced care produced results that may have been different had we waited until conditions had settled and faculty had gained more experience. However, discovering our participants' reluctance to include learners in their future virtual care practice earlier offers an opportunity to support both faculty and learners to better integrate before their resistance becomes entrenched. The sampling choice to include mostly faculty may also be viewed as a limitation by underrepresenting the learner perspective. We did not recruit more learners because we had enough information to address our research question, but future studies focusing on student and resident experience would complement the current research. Conclusions. Virtual care will continue to be part of patient care long after the pandemic has run its course. Training learners in virtual care is an educational challenge that will not disappear with COVID-19, even if our participants wished it could. It is incumbent upon medical educators to prepare medical students and residents to deliver excellent, compassionate, safe virtual care, mindful that it is not a substitute for in-person care. Learners need to understand the principles, processes, and challenges involved to obtain the virtual care fluency that will be required of them in future. With a thoughtful and planned approach to workflow and logistics, integrating learners into virtual care can become an excellent complementary educational experience. By bringing the educational viewpoint to institutional and systemic planning tables sooner rather than later, we can work to mitigate some of the inevitable virtual care challenges in a more timely and effective manner. And a final note, funding is acknowledged for this study from the Opportunities Fund of the Academic Health Sciences Center Alternative Funding Plan of the Academic Medical Organization of Southwestern Ontario. Mm -hmm.